crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776 to 1963, and survival of the richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. I'm Donald Jeffries. Great to have you listening in. Uh, my guest today is somebody I've admired for a while. We're a mutual admiration society. Garner Goldsmith is kind of an unusual combination. He worked as a scriptwriter for television shows like Outer Limits and Star Trek Voyager. He's written uh, novels, novellas. Uh, he has the Liberty Conspiracy video channels at BitChute, Rumble, and Odyssey. So he's a man after my own heart. We're going to talk about all kinds of issues today. Gardner, welcome to the show. Hey, Don. Thank you so much. And as I was saying before we went live for the audience, uh, this is a really, really fun time for me. Uh, first of all, knowing that Tony's in the background, Tony Artiburn is awesome. And knowing that I get to come on with you, a guy I've admired so much. And I know, like, I know, I, as I mentioned to you, I know you're having me on as your guest, but this is my chance to thank you for your great work. And I, I just uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it, Don. And congratulations on such a consistent body of fantastic work. It just has helped me so much. Oh, you're, 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 that's very kind of you, and I, I appreciate it very much. And I, I, well, I want to talk about your work. So how did you, because um, you seem like you came, you know, most people don't, you may not know this about me, but I, I still consider myself a novelist, and that's what I want to be. And I, yeah. I, I had one, I had the, the Unreals was my first published work. It's science fiction. And uh, I have two other novels that I, I can't get anybody interested in. You know, I can't, I literally can't get people to read them. I think they're the best things I've written, but it's, really hard but the nonfiction, i just got frustrated and said well let me just start talking about the things that matter and you know the stuff i've ranted about for years and yeah. uh that worked a lot better i've had much more success at it so i i'm impressed with somebody who's written novels and novellas and getting them published and who works as a script, a script writer for television shows like that so how did what's the uh genesis here of you going from working on television shows like that to being on a podcast with uh, somebody as far down the rabbit hole as me <laughs> well, you know, it, it's always been a parallel track for me, Don, because um, I grew up uh, with parents who were a little bit older when I was born. Uh, my dad was born in 1917. And so uh, he came from the World War II generation. He had met guys who had been in the Civil War. He was uh, very much a proto-libertarian and very steeped in free market economics and philosophy. Um, when he went into the Pacific in World War II, he brought these little notebooks with him. And uh, he would write down, as he read things, he would write down aphorisms from John Locke or uh, Frederick Bastier and, and people like that. And um, so he, uh, during my teen years, I'm the youngest child, sort of a surprise child for my parents. And um, so I was very interested in entertainment. I grew up, obviously, steeped watching television uh, we had reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. We used to tape record TV episodes. So I got a real ear for dialogue. And my dad and my mom would read books. So there was always the sort of parallel lines between the steeping in the principles of free market economics and Christian ethics and uh, American history, where you realize that the country isn't that old. 
uh, along with the entertainment stuff that as I began to grow, I wanted to be able to translate some of those ideas into what I had, you know, what I was seeing on television. And it was a weird thing because I think if I had grown up in a different era, um, you know, like, for example, I worked at a farm stand in my teen years. It was just, you know, seven minutes away, drove, picked the vegetables, you know, all those things. And it, in, a, in, a, in a world where maybe travel was a little bit more difficult and people were a little more local, um, I, you know, probably would have stuck around this area and gotten involved with some sort of industry that was close by. But the United States is now so it, be, it became so homogeneous that an entertainment became so pervasive that what I would see on a screen in my living room, I just thought, oh, I could do that. I didn't realize you got to go to L.A. to do that, you know. And um, so, you know, I have ideas and creative ideas and things like that. And I was like, oh, I can do this stuff. So it was, it was um, a very difficult uh, time to try to get out there, very difficult uh, work to get out there. I finally got out and worked at the Outer Limits. And um, I had sort of run that parallel line for a while. Before I went out to L.A., I did a journalism internship in Washington, D.C., and I saw how Washington worked. I had the economic background. I had the philosophical stuff that I was building, you know, and as you get older, you start to see the way things work a little bit more. It becomes more concrete. And so I went from being more of a sort of a patriotic Lockean conservative to much more libertarian anarchist, uh, Christian anarchist, uh, completely opposed to the state on philosophical grounds and moral grounds now. And so, uh, you know, I built I built up that um, that side of it. So. It's interesting, Don, because being out in Los Angeles um, was very difficult, uh, as you know. And there there were these little hidden nooks and crannies where you'd see a signal from somebody. When I was at Star Trek, I had a Reason Magazine T-shirt on. And I remember Brandon Braga recognized my Reason Magazine T-shirt at Star Trek. And I saw him years later. And he goes, you know, I'm a libertarian, too. And I go, oh, I know. I know you're a libertarian. He goes, how did you know that? I was like, because you recognize my Reason Magazine shirt in 1998, dude. So, yeah, so it's been it's been a weird experience. And and I, just a, a little little something to say to you, Don, um, because, you know, I, I've heard you mention about, you know, the narrative fiction, the prose fiction. And it's a similar yeah. thing for me. And I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to put the ideas aside or or dispel the importance of our notions of wanting to work on fiction. But I think we're part of a group of people, and I think every generation gets caught in whatever circumstances might be surrounding their lives where you say, you know what, you got to pick your precedence. And I think we've picked our precedence. And I, I'm glad that I'm not working in television now. Um, because I wouldn't be able to do these things right now when I think this is a really important time. And it's not like I have some, some wonderful gift that's been given to me, but maybe I have been given a gift by God to say, Hey man, you know, even though you're frustrated, you, you can't do as much fiction right now. I think, I, I think I'm doing the right thing and I think you're doing the right thing too. Well, I, I appreciate it. And you know, uh, I think a lot, especially the best thing I've ever written is called the simulators, and it's a very dystopian you know, view of the future. And considering where we are now, I obviously wrote it before things got this bad. And it's like, uh, it, truth is stranger than fiction, they say. And at this point, our truth is way more stranger than fiction. So it's hard to conjure up 
fiction at this point. So you're, you're right, but you, you and I have a lot more in common than you think. I, I'm the youngest in my family, and my parents were born in 1910 and 1912. Oh, so uh, I, 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 I mean, when I was growing up, everybody, you know, I was a, uh, a nep- um, I, I have a, a nephew older than me, a sister that's 19 years older than me. So everybody thought they were my grandparents. I, I can kind of relate to that. So I, I grew up hearing about older times and like, uh, and probably the other my other peers did, and so I think that probably had a lot to do with me being interested in history right from the get go. My parents yeah, are so much yeah. older, you know. They were talking about earlier times, probably for you too. Yeah, and I always had a problem when I was in high school. You know, obviously we were surrounded by aging hippie baby boomers, and they were just the worst, <laughs> insufferable deconstructionism in literature, and it almost turned me off to writing. One of the few things that was beneficial for me. Don, and you might find this interesting, is um, when I was about 14 or 13, uh, my mom got me a subscription to Twilight Zone magazine, which was being published Mm -hmm. by Rod Serling's widow, Carol. Mm -hmm. And um, I I loved it. It was just terrific. Uh, You know, the stories were so great. And I'm reading stuff by Tom Monteleone and Robert McCammon and all, you know, F. Paul Wilson and all these great writers. And um And it was interesting because I used to send stories off to them that I do on the old Pika typewriter and they'd get rejected. You know, I was 14. But yeah, Yeah. Mrs. Serling was so nice because she would put little notes in pencil on the rejected things that they send back with my Sazies. Yeah. Very cool. And yeah. And it was because of her that I was able to say, okay, I've got a terrible experience in high school here, um, but I'm I'm. I'm getting respect from these people who respect writers. And I think this is one of the things that I really admire. And I want to, I want to praise you right off the bat here, Don, and particularly um, just to open up this one. And there's so many books that obviously I could praise you for so much, so much of your work, but I want to thank you for, and you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson is a mixed bag for me, obviously in many, many ways, but the way that you dispel many of the erroneous, the, the facade that they put forward in 1998 about Thomas Jefferson fathering Sally Hemings kids. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you when that was going on, I was at star Trek and it was clearly a smoke screen for what they were doing to try to try to find some equivalency between Jefferson and that false, completely false rumor that was made up by a guy who had be, become very, um, uh, disinclined towards Jefferson and sort of become yeah. his enemy, of course, and and the Monica Lewinsky stuff. And, you know, when I was at Paramount, it was very difficult to find people to, with whom I could talk because sure. I knew what was going on. I worked in a lab where my sister worked as a blood research uh, clinician when I was in college. And I was already familiar at that time with the electrophoresis gels for family trees, for the for the proteins, for DNA. So I, I knew how to read those things because I used to go into the lab. I used to put the, the data in the computer. And so I could go into the lab and I could see on family trees where there were inherited characteristics. And I, I remember specifically watching one of the McNeil Lehrer public television. Your taxes are going to be taken for it, regardless of whether you like it shows. And <laughs> they were talking about this Sally Hemings thing and they showed the gels of some of Sally Hemings uh, um, um, descendants and a sample from Jefferson. And immediately I knew immediately I'm like, well, that's Jefferson's family, but it can't be Jefferson. 
It's not possible because you, you know, if you if you can read the gels, you could just tell. And I remember it wasn't until years later that Reason, again, Reason Magazine, had a uh, panel that they had put together of historians and geneticists. And 11 of the 12 of that panel said the descendant is probably from Jefferson's family, but it can't be Jefferson. And it was probably his I think it was his nephew or something like that used to visit the yeah, plantation. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 that that sort of disrespect was what I used to see in the deconstructionism that that teachers and professors used to do in postmodernism yeah. to try to bend any piece of fiction. That's why anything I have published in the future will will not be published unless there are notes at the end that explain to people, do not misread what I've written here. Don't allow somebody to misread this because it is absolute disrespect to those people who have passed away and can't defend themselves to the writers. I remember we had a, we had a teacher telling us all this crap that was in Ray Bradbury stories. Not even there. No possible way. And she's sitting there. Well, yeah. it's just, it, you know, it's like, look, that, it, and that's that. I think that's a really good sign of the difference between a person who believes in individual liberty and respect for others. And a person who doesn't, who will manipulate to get to an end. The ends justify the means. And that's what we're dealing with all the time now, you know? Absolutely. And that's, and you're, and it's just, um, in, in, in Hidden History 3, which I'm almost done, I, I think you'll like it a lot. I, I, I come up with some, a lot of, uh, a lot of incredible information that kind of, about all these things. It's kind of a combination of hidden history and crimes and cover ups because it covers everything. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot more on JFK, a lot more on 9 11. But, a lot more stuff in the revolutionary, a lot more about Lincoln, uh, lots on, on Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, man. And just, nice. And, nice. I, and I cover myself with the left, right thing, because I, I, I found, and you know, my I got to thank my researchers, the three researchers that I call them, Bob Wilson and yeah. Graves and Peter Seacoss. They send me so much information. And Peter sent me uh, so many things about uh, Indian atrocities going back to the Revolutionary War. And so the, and these are massacres that have been largely forgotten. So uh, I think that's how I stay away from being labeled because I cover that kind of stuff, which uh, conservatives typically are going to shy away from. Uh, and then that way, maybe it kind of uh, it offsets a bit, you know, like Lincoln stuff, uh, because it's just it is what it is. I mean, you know, this is if you're if you're a libertarian, I don't know how any libertarian could like Lincoln. Lincoln was the first statist. And oh, yeah. So much of our so many of our problems go back to him because this is, you look at what's happening with the January 6 prisoners now. And if we ever have a civil libertarian uh, outcry, which I don't think will happen because there's so few of its left in the country. But if, mm. if the civil libertarians finally say, well, you know, exactly, you know, how long are we going to let this go on? It's like a year and a half now. You're keeping these people behind bars, solitary confinement, beatings. We're hearing all these rumors, of this horrible stuff. Uh, they're being denied all due process. And now you're holding yeah. a ridiculous hearing in Congress which is going to jeopardize any possibility of them having a fair trial. And, and you don't even, nobody's even commenting on that. It's like, how are these people oh, yeah. supposed to get a trial? But if, if they ever was an outcry, I know what they would do. They would cite our boy Abraham Lincoln's treatment yep. of prisoners as a precedent. You know, that's Absolutely. what happened in the first insurrection. But so they got their bases covered. But I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard. As you said, you've talked about anarchists in, in the early in it. I, uh, I find it harder and harder to argue with anarchists. Yeah, you know, um, my 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 philosophical position is um, that uh, you know theft is immoral, and claiming control over anyone else is immoral. And um, 
you know, my fallback position would be the Constitution. I would prefer the Articles of Confederation. Yeah. Um, so as an anarchist and, you know, a person who comments on these things, uh, I have no problem reminding the people who offer themselves up for the offices to say, listen, I'm not even involved in this thing. I didn't swear an oath to the Constitution. The Constitution, the social contract is a completely bogus argument that's made by nonsensical people going all the way back to Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan and Rousseau. I mean, it's all an excuse to say we're a large group of people. We're the gang and you've agreed to it because you haven't fled us. That is absolutely completely unethical and immoral. And yet it is the basis of everything on which the United States and all polices are based, whether it's royalty or anything else. It's like, well, you live here. You didn't run away. So you accept it. It's like, no, I don't accept it. Leave me the hell alone. Right. So. But beyond that, I would say, look, practically speaking, there are these rules and you can see some of the ways that the people who like to bend the rules and rhetorically shape things will pick and choose their icons and slowly demonize people when it fits their purposes or immediately demonize people when it fits their purposes. So you got Abraham Lincoln, who's this angelic icon when he was a scumbag. He was an absolute <laughs> criminal element. The guy, I, I, when, I remember when I was nine years old, Don, I was the tall guy, right? <laughs> so I had to memorize and recite the Gettysburg Address. I had the, uh -huh. I had the top hat and I had a beard that looped yeah. around my, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And when I found out later what Lincoln was like, how he made more money off of a land, a you know, shady land deal with the unconstitutional transcontinental railroad buying land Mr. outside. Railroad, of yeah. yeah, yeah. How he tried yeah. to, you know, tried to uh tried to apprehend Supreme Court justices just because they weren't gonna rule his way. Yes. I mean, talk yeah. about tyrannical, you know? Yeah. And and it's 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 nothing, it doesn't minimize criticism of people like FDR for setting up um uh for setting up Pearl Harbor or apprehending the Japanese to also right. call attention to these other people. And, it, and, and one of the things that, right. that, um, yeah, one of the things that, that I, I find striking is I was teaching for a little while at a place, uh, a charter school. And I remembered I, I went in and we had a preliminary meeting and I set up some of my books that I was going to show to the students. I had some of Tom DiLorenzo's, DiLorenzo's books, yeah. like mm -hmm. the real Lincoln and so on. And, um, and I was talking about uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was an absolute scumbucket, an absolute criminal element, totally corrupt, um, just unbelievable. And, um, and they're like, oh, you can't criticize Lincoln. The place is called the Founders Academy. And they're like, <laughs> I was, they're like, he's a founder. I was like, what are you talking about? He's a founder. How you, what, he wasn't, I, what? I was like, and they're like, oh, you can't, you can't criticize Hamilton. I was like, look, if I can't criticize <laughs> Hamilton, I can't criticize central banking in the history of the United States. I can't talk about Jackson getting rid of the Bank of the United States. Right. I can't talk about inflation because it all goes back to those clowns. You and know? that's the problem is that the Hamiltonian side won. They won then yeah. and they're still winning because Hamilton was the father of debt. He's the one that Absolutely. said, you know what? Hey, better, let, let's absorb all the debt to the states from the Revolutionary War. And you know yeah. Jefferson and said, "What are you? Are you crazy?" And and Hamilton had Washington's ear, and he was more uh, for whatever reason he was more persuasive with Washington. And it's it's a shame because uh, 
the Jeffersonians lost. Uh, Jackson fought back for a while. And uh, another, I think, underrated president, John Tyler, also vetoed yeah. the central bank. Yeah. And I, I'm still trying to get a hold of John. John Tyler still has a grandson that's alive. It's unbelievable. Oh, cool. he still has one. Wow. He's, and I'm trying, trying to get a hold of him, but it's not easy. They haven't returned my call. So I'd love to have him on the show, you know. But I, I, he's 90-some years old, but I think he's still lucid. But, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where Tyler – uh, he was one of those really hardy Americans back then. He had like 18 kids by his two wives. Wow. You know, the first wife dies out. You have like nine more with a much younger wife. And uh, so that's how it happened. His kids, he had like that second group were born late in life. And wow. then I think at least one of them, I guess, had kids late in life too. So it's, but it's amazing to think that somebody today is that closely connected to somebody who's died in the 1840s. Or something like yeah, that. I mean, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, more than that, because he, he was a Confederate. Uh, he, he died right as the revolution, as the Civil War was beginning, because he had actually yeah. uh, been elected to the Confederate Congress, which explains why he's probably why he's ranked so lowly by the court <laughs> historians. You know, the Confederate member of Congress. I don't think so. Well, I, I really like, you know, how you, you can latch on to some of these stories that sort of uh, amplify onto a bunch of different things. For example, if you look at. Uh, uh, Davy Crockett's uh, story from basically yeah. like maybe 1830 or something like that, that uh, that yeah. speech that he gave, not yours to give. I often mention that to people when they're talking about welfare programs and things like that. And he told that story during his second term when he uh, describes how during his first term in Congress, <laughs> he came out of Tennessee and um, he they had seen a fire off in Georgetown. And um, they they ran over, they tried to help out and it, it destroyed a bunch of family houses and stuff. So the next day or a couple of days later, they passed a, a, a bill in Congress to raise some thousands of dollars to help the people who had been burned out of their houses. And then he said that he went back and was politicking for reelection and he happened across a farmer. And he said, oh, you know, I happen to be one of these unfortunate souls who's running for office. And the guy said, oh, I know who you are. And he's like, oh, he goes, and I, I can't vote for you. I'm sorry. He's like, why? He said, because either you are ignorant of the Constitution and what it actually says, or you don't care. Either way, I can't, I can't vote for you. So he asked the man to explain, and the guy explained to him how he voted this money. It's not in the Constitution. And he said, well, look, if I change my ways, would you come out on the Hastings with me? Uh, on the hustings with me and, uh, you know, help me, you know, maybe get reelected if I, you know, learn my lesson. So the guy did. And um, and he told such a great lesson. Then you look at, you know, what Davy Crockett did later, you know, you know, quite a heroic guy. What an amazing story. Sure. And Absolutely. yeah. And that's what I love about, you know, things like your books and and because they, they help set the record straight about some of these people. And I think, you know, going back to the start of our conversation, um, I don't know whether it comes from having that sort of longer term thing where, you know, I had a dad who was older, who taught me the importance of these long term principles and having met people whose memories shouldn't be lost and they should be respected. Um, but it really, it, especially the older I get, um, meeting people like you and Tony and David Knight and those guys, you know, watching, watching the shows. I love watching you guys with Billy Ray, Billy the Kid. Because, you know, you're really trying to dig in to find the truth, you know, and, uh, and that makes a difference to me. I, I, I really appreciate that stuff. Well, I, I, I appreciate you and you're, you're seeking for the truth as well. And uh, yeah. it's, this is the, we're the media, you know, these are the people that like yeah. I said, if, if, if they just allowed people like us 
have a show on Fox News or CNN or something, it, it, it would become the most, not because we're that great, but because of what we're talking about. The perspective yeah. offered up, and even the sheeple out there, that's how you wake them up. Because if they see it on TV, it, it catches their eye. They're, they're not going to go seek it out on these platforms. Most people won't. But if it's on television, they'll, hey, what did he just say? You know, <laughs> And it, it will be saying such provocative things that they're not hearing anywhere else. So yeah. if we're talking about this. So it, that's, that's what, how they keep the parameters of the, of the dates are restricted because they don't allow this kind of talk, you know, and, and that's, that's why the social media the censorship on the social media is so bad. And I'm experiencing it right now. Cause I got to tell you, I, and, and in a few minutes, I'm going to try clicking this Gardner, but I'm so scared with my computer. I'm not sure if when I click this, it's going to take, I hope it takes me to a new window. But if yeah. it overrides the StreamYard link, you might lose me. So just in case, I'll let you know if I go away, it's because of that. But um, <coughs> you typically, when, when I stream, uh, I'm busy with comments from YouTube. For whatever reason, people, I don't know, I don't get the comments from Facebook or Twitter. But YouTube used to be very busy. And even though I don't go there much, but we had a lively thing going there. And YouTube is, uh, they, they actually banned my channel. And I... Um, Actually, uh, you know, for what, just for whatever reason, just for the hell of it, I, um, you know, protested it and uh, yeah. appealed it. And I actually I won protest. my appeal. Yeah, I protested. Exactly. Oh, good. I, I, good. I'm good at protesting, right? And I, I appealed it and uh, I actually won the appeal. And so they brought it back. But then the next week, immediately uh, gave me a strike. But then they also said they were banning my channel. Look, last time I looked, my channel's there. So I think it's just uh, probably it'll come back next week. But when it's not uh, live streaming, I don't get, that many as many live viewers so it's a uh, it's disappointing so uh but it's that's what's happening and the problem is nobody stood up for um alex jones so you know whatever whatever you think of him when they took him down he was the biggest name and i yeah. knew that was going to be a domino effect and it did you know when i when i yeah. was uh two three years ago i i, I was uh going on all these uh, shows like sgt report who had almost 750,000 subscribers or something. And there were several of them out there like that that I, that I went on. They, and those are the biggest platforms I could get outside of Coast to Coast. And they, with one fell swoop, they were all gone. Once they get rid of Alex Jones, and I told people at the time, okay, I know you think Alex Jones is entertaining, you think he's a disinvoid, whatever. I have a lot of issues with him. But he was the biggest name in this alternative world, for good or bad. And once yeah. they took him down and you didn't hear a peep of protest from Donald Trump, anybody nobody said you know that was wrong and then here we are now where we're still doing it and it's just you so you have a disinformation board or orwellian disinformation board with or without the mary poppins director yeah to be there but it's still there i mean so what is misinformation it's like hate speech and it's just uh that's why i just can't fit in gardner to this this world because it's just it's amazing that there aren't more people that are appalled by this but i know from having debates with people on the internet and stuff that People are just, I don't know how many times people say, you know, free speech has consequences. And I ask him every time, what do you mean by consequences and who determines the consequences? And yeah. they never have yeah. an answer. I say, so who, so yeah. you, you're the one, what is hate speech? Who determines yeah. what it is? How do you define it? It's an emotion. Well, I know. What do you mean? So you, who determines what it is? I can say you're, what you're saying is hate speech and misinformation. You know what? Yeah, yeah, if you have free speech, you have the right to be misinformed. You know, I mean, you look at look at John Stuart Mill when he put out on Liberty. Right. John Stuart Mill at that at that point, John Stuart Mill had said, look, at this point in history, we've got 
many of the Western nations have constitutions or they have some sort of written rules as to what the government can and can't do. He said, what I want to talk to is the society out there because he recognized the difference between the state and society, right? And the polis is artificial. It's imposed on us. Society are those things that we create ourselves through voluntary interaction. And we can adjust how we will exercise our rights amongst others. And we retain our rights. The state exists always at the expense of our rights. It assumes that it can attack our rights in order to get the money to fund its gangland operations. So Stuart, John Stuart Mill, and I don't agree all the way with utilitarianism in any way, um, because it's, it's, it's oftentimes not based on natural rights. It's not based on the actual recognition of the importance of human rights. It has, a, it has a consequentialist view of the ends justifying the means in some cases. Mill wasn't as bad as some people like David Hume um, uh, and uh, Jeremy Bentham. But, uh, and by the way, the, you probably, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of Jeremy Bentham's stuffed body. I was going to say, that's, 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 that's what I remember about him, man. It's like, if yeah, I yeah, had yeah. the money, I probably, that's probably what I would want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But I yeah, used to show that. I used to show that. <laughs> I would show that to my students. They'd be like, whoa, yeah. But, but you know, John Stuart Mill was saying, look, what I'm starting to see here in the 1800s is a trend among people who, even though they have these supposed safeguards, they're allowing, they're, they're pushing their government to start to silence people because they're losing yeah. the value of recognition of the value of free speech. And he said, look, you know, in order to recognize something and to find something that is erroneous, you have to be able to debate it. And he even talked about how some of the early upstart religions that he was noticing out there were the most vehemently pro-free speech because they wanted to be able to debate, whereas the older religions weren't free speech because they had established their power bases. And they right. didn't want this. And he said, you're stifling yourselves. You need this fertile ground to be able to debate. And, um, and you know, I, I found this a lot just in the work that I'm doing. Uh, it, this, this artificial hierarchy that they create of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So right now I'm working on a piece, Don, about this uh, uh, recent Supreme Court ruling about the uh, Washington State football coach. Uh, in yeah. this, you know, this town where he, he was praying and so on. And, and the thing that drives me nuts about this is there, there are a couple assumptions that they, that they make within the constitutional realm where um, they've built up this tarnish of stare decisis and this hierarchy of, well, um, this is where the compelling state interest would come in to be able to block this type of speech or stop this type of speech. What they don't recognize is the state and rights are incompatible. You cannot have in any possible way, try to try to speak freely in a courtroom. They won't let you. You'll be found in contempt of court. Contempt of they court, can't, yeah. yeah. You get on a plane, you want to bring in a, you want to bring a firearm on a plane for a little while in the, the mm -hmm. W. Bush administration, they allowed that. Mm -hmm. But you're supposed to have a right to keep and bear arms. But if it's right. on the regulated air routes that the government took over starting in the 1920s because they claim all the planes go over state borders, so therefore we can regulate them, which is utterly bogus and yeah. a complete misreading of their interstate commerce clause. And it started, by the way, I've mentioned this 
Yeah, I mentioned this before, Don. It started with um, lighted air routes in the United Postal Service in the 1920s. That's how the federal government got involved in regulating air routes. That's when soon after that, about 10, 15 years after that, Roosevelt started to shovel money to various municipal politicians and state politicians to glad hand people to say, oh, yeah, we'll start an airport in Chicago. Like, what? Oh, yeah, it'll be a hub. It'll be a great place. Like, no, it's a really bad place to have a hub. That's a stupid place to have an airport. <laughs> the, the weather there is the worst. Are you an yeah. idiot? Well, yeah, you know, but so that's that's what they've done. So, yeah, try to exercise your 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 uh, Second Amendment so-called right protected by the Second Amendment, which is supposed to be fundamental regardless, pre-existing the government and try to do that on a plane. You know, you can, you know, Fourth <laughs> Amendment rights. Yeah, try to get into an airport. They've interceded and imposed and come into your municipal airport with an entity that is completely unconstitutional. They do this right. all the time, you know. Sure. So, just so try, yeah, and try and to, to bypass, back, try to bypass a drunk driving roadblock. You can't do that. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh well, the cops made up. They had they had just cause. Like no, it's not up yeah. to the cop to make up just cause. Exactly. It's up to a exactly. judge to publicly issue a friggin' warrant. That's, That's what right. it's supposed to be, because under in Boston, they were busting into people's houses and stopping them on the streets to see if they had the yes. right stamps, for God's yes. sake. Yes. That's right. believable. I'm going to try to click on this. Now. So he just here yeah. goes. And uh, so if you lose me and folks, if you lose your minute, Gardner will entertain you until I get back in. But uh, <laughs> this works. Yeah. Right, right, I'll read right. from Don's book. This works. That's what I'll do. That's right. There you go. So this works. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but and okay, John, while you good, click, okay. I'll just yeah. Uh, and and while you do it, I'll just mention. Um, so if you look at if you look at some of these cases and you look at the ways that they arbitrarily make up these things, it's this giant kabuki dance. It's all fake. Right. It's the whole thing is fake, and it goes all the way back to Alexander Hamilton. And I'll give you a great example. When they passed the when they when they you know did the ridiculous thing of, of of pushing Rhode Island to finally accept the the Constitution, when the Articles of Confederation required a universal one hundred percent agreement for any amendment for the Articles of Confederation, so that was a usurpation. The, the Constitution was a complete usurpation. No wonder so many participants of the of in the Declaration of Independence wouldn't attend the Constitutional Convention. It was a massive usurpation. Everybody understood that, and they did it because they wanted to have a taxing authority. But one of the tricks was they passed an excise tax and they passed the ability for a tariff. They didn't, of course, pass an income tax. Right. But this is what's so mm -hmm. fascinating to me. And, and this is one of the things where to go back to, you know, doing entertainment versus getting into the nonfiction stuff, which, you know, I've been so steeped in and I've, I've talked about this stuff. I used to debate my teachers when I was 11 years old. They would pull my hair and throw me in closets and stuff. <laughs> One teacher almost poured a soda over my head. It was ridiculous. But, I, you know, if I if I can commune with you on this on this level, you know, we pick and choose our spots in history and sometimes history is thrown at us. And, uh, you know, and, and you look at Tony's experience in the military and the amazing things that he's learned and he's been able to translate to us on a, on a purely hugely steeped moral level. You look at David Knight and his experiences uh, in, as in com coming out of engineering and the different businesses and his marriage, wonderful family, uh, working with Alex and then having a falling out with Alex and the different problems that he's had there. And, and what I think is fascinating yeah. is each one of us gets this opportunity to say, and, and you, you can't necessarily always do it consistently, 
sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you say, okay, do I have to shift my focus here? What's my learning process? To me, I have recognized this is about learning. This is about my own moral expansion under recognition of what Christ has given me during this time. So I have to take information and assimilate it on a very rapid basis. And I have to take historical knowledge and try to make sure that I compartmentalize that and I remember it. And I don't want to necessarily tell other people, this is what you've got to do. But I don't think that there's, there are, I think there are a few things that are better to do right now than to get chunks of history and remember these things and assimilate them and put them in places where you can access them and tell other people. That's what I'm trying to do as I start up piece by piece with Liberty Conspiracy on BitChute and on Rumble and on my Substack at Gardner Goldsmith, the Substack and Twitter. I'm starting to put the pieces together to be able to build something that will sort of be like a combination of Corbett Report meets the Mises Institute meets the Foundation for Economic Education, sure. meets finally an appreciation for entertainment and history. Um, and I just, I, can I ask I'm you a question, Don? I'm curious. Yeah. Of course. Of so course. I was talking, I was talking, yeah, I was talking with somebody about this. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this group of guys. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Gary Bigler on YouTube. He goes by Nerdrotic. He has a horn glasses, beard, uh, used to live in San Francisco, libertarian-minded guy. His wife lost her uh, her uh, hairstyling business because of the lockdowns. He's a great guy. Uh, there are a bunch of other people who are involved, and they call themselves on the sort of review uh, Generation X side, the fandom menace. Because they're former Star Wars right. fans, fans of Star Trek, Doctor Who, science fiction mm -hmm. genre, comic books. And... They have seen how the woke, postmodernist, Marxist approach that was used to manipulate so many things that we had to experience in high school has been used to take over things that we really enjoyed, whether it's Star Trek or Doctor Who or Star Wars or whatever. Yes, yes. Yep, comic books, Avengers. And it's always got it. You, you immediately can't suspend disbelief because they're injecting the politically correct boardroom to try to get some message over there. They're trying to take over a character rather than create their own stinking character. It's like and, yes. and, and, and it's you can't enjoy it anymore. And one of the things that I realized the other night, Don, and I'll, I'll shut up after this, but I, I do want to get your thoughts on this. Because I think with the consistent disappointment that people have felt about their iconic entertainment things being sullied and destroyed in order to inject, you know, LGBTQ stuff rather than starting up their, you know, yeah. something that people would, would enjoy just for the sake of that character. Um, I think it, it start, I've started to see it as I've gotten older. It, it, it makes you realize that not every, there's an impermanence to most entertainment, unless it's maybe Shakespeare or Jules Verne or, you know, some of the stuff that really Sherlock Holmes stuff, they might try to pick at it, but the, the, that stuff will stand. There's an impermanence in particular to television stuff, except maybe if it's like The Prisoner, even though they tried to redo that, that was thrown by the wayside. And I think what we're finding is in this corruption that comes around, 
and uh, pardon me if I'm too like highfalutin here. I'll, I'll shut up real quick. But in this corruption that comes around, I think it allows us to open our eyes to what was valuable, the themes that were valuable in those things, yeah. the moral stuff that regardless of what shell it was in, we're starting to learn moral lessons. So Star Wars, it was a father-son thing. It was about good and evil, you know? Doctor Who, during its heyday, good and evil, you know, that sort of thing. Um, entertainment that has been corrupted, but we recognize what the good stuff was, I think we can start to see why it was good. And it's not just about telling a story. It's about it's about getting a moral lesson in there. And I think that that's the stuff that lasts. That's the stuff that hits the heart. All this other stuff that's this faux morality, it's not real morality. It's fashion. And it doesn't last. It's impermanent. Uh, yeah, and I think you've, you've hit on a point that uh, I talk about a lot. And that's, you know, most of the shows that uh, someone like me and probably you are attracted to a lot of the sci-fi stuff with kind of, you know, very intriguing concepts, Twilight zone stuff uh, that, are, that are made now. If I hear about a show that has any of those elements, I know I'm going to be in for a heavy dose of propaganda. Same thing with yeah. the uh, superhero. I, 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 I'm still a superhero fan in some ways. Uh, I, I, I used to like those movies. I think it saturated the market now. It's kind of ridiculous, but they are so full of propaganda. There's just nonstop political correctness, and it's uh, it ruins it because it's it's one you know you, you can make your points like Rod Serling was a uh, typical very liberal guy of his day, and a lot yeah. of that seeped into some of his scripts, but he but he not most of them, and yeah. sometimes you'd say okay, there's Rod, you know you can tell what he's talking about, but that's fine. You may, you know you can do it here or there, but it wasn't so heavy handed, and it's yeah. so heavy handed. They're hitting you over the head with it okay i get yes. it I, you know, I mean when you see you know every other relationship on television is interracial now okay they, you can say that's that's not good or bad but why are you promoting it why are you why are you promoting it to an extent that it clearly doesn't exist are you yeah. making same thing with uh gay gay relationships again okay i understand you you want to promote this and, and i'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily but it's so heavy-handed they're hitting you over yeah. the head with it. And and yeah. that's what I don't, I, I remember one, one of the Harry Potter movies, uh, it was so ridiculous where they had, um, uh, I guess Harry Potter was, Harry was in love with an, an Asian girl. And you had uh, the, uh, she ended up rejecting him or something. I don't know. But they're, so they're, they're, they're sitting at a table. And, and of course, it's mostly uh, white, still majority. White and one of the one of the guys just looks and he says, "Oh, it's easy to get you know date and look around." And so he looks past all the white girls and he picks a black girl, and then the other guy does the same thing. And it's like, okay, it's so heavy-handed that you know yeah. let, let's you know, why are you making it so obvious? Because then it takes it out of the realm of fiction. It's not creativity then, is it? It becomes propaganda, and uh, that's what I object to. It's that, that heavy-handed stuff, and you see it on television. Shows the Flash is a perfect one. It's on. Uh, it's kind of jumped the shark, but it was a good show for a long time. But it was so full of interracial relationships and a gay police commissioner, and just it was just nonstop. And it was like, okay, maybe you have one or something, but you can't have like every relationship be that way, or or it, it distracts from the, the superhero storyline. At least for me, it does. 
I agree with you. You know, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I worked part time at a bookstore for a long time, and the most popular books were the stinking Oprah books. Oh, my God, man. I mean, <laughs> just the worst, the worst, worst, worst. Oprah put something on a, on her list and all these ladies would just buy it automatically, yeah. you know, without question. And I'd say the first nine of the first 10 or the first 10 of the first 11 of those books, it was always, always about somebody who was a victim. And they didn't even understand yeah. that by <laughs> pushing this culture of victimology, well, they, they thought, and this is what, you know, she would be promoting all the time on her show. She would say, <clears throat> oh, yeah, we, you know, we're overcoming our victimhood. It's like, no, what you're doing is you're reinforcing this perpetuation of the idea that you have been a victim. Stop talking about it. Shut up about it and yeah. move on. This is, you know, it goes back to, exactly. it goes back to, uh, yeah, you know, and. And it, it was just ridiculous, just insufferable. And that's the sort of stuff, whether it's race relations or whatever, at a certain point you say, I don't know what point it is, but there is a point where perpetuating it and continuing to talk about it is no longer therapeutic or helpful or anything like that. Yeah. It's an industry. That's what it is. It's a frigging industry. And it's not just an industry, it's a political industry. <clears throat> it's a way to demonize enemies and short circuit debate. That's what it's all about. And that's why that's why I really Absolutely. love looking. Yeah, that's why I really enjoy being able to to get these chunks of information and and hold on to this historical information, which is what I'm hoping to do with the liberty conspiracy stuff, to be able to assimilate stuff. So for example, yeah. if people watch my MRC TV pieces, typically what I try to do is I try to take a contemporary story and open up the onion so that you can see other things that might be hidden inside it. So like I'm writing about this story out of Washington state now, and I'm saying, look, <laughs> what people are talking about here is whether or not this guy had the right to be able to pray on, on this property, right. On this school property as this football coach. Right. <laughs> and, What's involved in this is actually much bigger. The, 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 the first level involvement of it is they say, oh, he has a First Amendment right to be able to do this. And, you know, the Supreme Court has all these dumb, arbitrary distinctions about, well, there's this hierarchy of things. Is, is, it, is, it, is there a strict, compelling state interest to be able to stop the man from praying or allow for prayer on the government school property and things like that? And then they go into the idea of, <coughs> excuse me, they go into the idea of, well, it's the incorporation doctrine. So then you have to know about the incorporation doctrine. The incorporation doctrine brought in after the Civil War, it's, it's just stare decisis, just a bunch of judges saying, well, the 14th Amendment means that the states incorporated the Bill of Rights into their constitutions, which is utterly bogus. They didn't do that. They didn't rewrite their constitutions. It's just legal interpretation. It's just the people in charge have decided this is how we're going to interpret the Equal Protection Clause of the of the 14th Amendment. And even if you were to, to think that the First Amendment had been rolled into the state con so just just a quick setup. You know, this is a great example of history that uh, you know some people aren't aware of this stuff. The First Amendment only applies to Congress. It only specifies Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of religion or of the press. 
the, yeah, there were religious schools up until the 1870s in various states. Pennsylvania was a religious state. They had them all over the place, right? (laughs) So what they did was, yeah, with the incorporation doctrine, that's the way that they federalized all these things. They said, oh, no, no, no. Even though, and and I'm a I'm a libertarian anarchist. I don't want any state to get involved with people abridging their their freedom of speech. But as far as the constitutional structure of it goes, I recognize that the states under the Constitution are supposed to, under their rules, I didn't sign it. Under their rules, the states are supposed to be allowed to have their speech codes and their religious codes. Now, I don't want government-funded schools. I don't want government-funded religion. I don't want government anything because the government is immoral. The state is an immoral construct. It's predicated through theft and aggression. That's it, period. There's no debate about it. That's all, right? So (laughs) nobody can debate about it. So so the thing about it is that now they roll this in there. So I'm doing this story and I'm saying, okay, I feel lucky that I get to do these things for MRC-TV. I'm very, very fortunate because it, they, they're not libertarian anarchists, they're conservative Republicans, but they recognize that they don't mind giving me that opportunity to open things up once in a while. Not all the time, I can't do it all the time. Sometimes there's editorial decisions, they've got to shorten stuff or whatever. That's why I want to do the liberty conspiracy stuff. So we can get this learning out there for people so that they can hold on to this this difference. And that's why I think what you do is so important. And I'm so glad you're on Rockfin. And I'm so glad Tony's been helping out getting things set up because you're going to be doing even more stuff as your books come around. And we're yes. going to get more fiction out there. We will get more fiction. Um, there's some great networks that we're starting to create. And I know it's, you know, the early days, we're finding our common friends in these new circles of, of you might call it the remnant. I don't know. Um, but you know, each one of us takes these stories. We spend some time on these stories. I'm currently researching going way back to guilds and the first creations of the corporations and stuff like that. So I can sort of understand that, that, that battle between corporate power and, you know, and, um, government regulation and stuff like that, which is bogus. So there's a lot to learn. I, 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 it is. I, I have managed to access the chat room. Uh, Chris Gray is my old friend. Uh, glad to see you here. One of the three searchers does so much work for me. You have a couple fans oh, right up there. Samuel yes. Bruce says, Samuel Bruce says, nice, a guard appearance. Rhonda Tate says, good to see you, guard. Uh, Rhonda Tate again, didn't know guard would be here. Uh, let's see if I have any questions here. Okay. <laughs> Riley. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Riley is the name of my dog, by the way. My a uh, supermodel dog that's, uh, I think, autistic. <laughs> she's lovable, but uh, then she's beautiful. And just to, just to let everybody know, Don, you know, to, to get back okay, to a, your fiction stuff, um, I, if people want to look over at Amazon, they can find my novellas out there. And um, and I have a short story that's in a, a, a book called Chiral Mad that I wrote like eight years ago that predicted all this pandemic stuff i even have the six foot distancing stuff in there and i have color codes for people being able to go out and work and stuff like that it's all false flag stuff but i do want to mention that um um the 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 network that is being created and what i'm hoping to do is i really want to do more live um journalism stuff a daily show uh for liberty conspiracy that would maybe maybe be on rockfin 
Uh, Tony's got some some great things that he's working on, and I know you're you're working on things mm -hmm. too. So I'm going to try to try to find that balance and keep these communication lines um, actually open up the communication yeah. lines more. Um, you know, coming from my MRC TV stuff, so I can sort of you know embrace all of you guys because being able to to join you and you know working with David Knight and working with Tony. It's just been such a yeah. nice new thing for me, and I really want to do just so much more stuff. Yeah. Well, you're, and and David Knight obviously loves you because he has you on all the time, so it's it's great, Kevin. And obviously, I'm I'm, I'm a huge uh, admirer of his work. Uh, Tony and I talk about we both pretty much. I mean, I, I I listen to David on my phone, the archive version of the show, pretty much every day as I'm walking around the neighborhood yeah. and uh yeah just he, he and i are pretty much on the same wavelength he says a lot of things that i that nobody else is saying that i've been saying behind the scenes but i just want to go over somebody mj nichols donated to my new chair fund an art or maybe it covers a can of wd yeah every, everybody talks about squeaky chair okay I, I get it it's become part of me now okay where Rhonda says where's the protest i don't i think we're protesting pretty well unless you've been outside of here um uh, Riley mentions the Black Mirror. I need to watch Black Mirror. Have you ever watched that guard? Everybody says it's very yeah. Twilight Zoning on Netflix. Yep. I haven't, I haven't yeah. watched it. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine. I used to travel over to England before Doctor Who started up, and I, I became friends with a lot of people at some of the British uh, um, sci-fi mags and stuff. Started to write for one of those guys back in the early 2000s. And when Charlie Booker started up that uh, Black Mirror thing, he already had a really cool nonfiction show called Screen Wipe. He would do once a year, and it was just just mm -hmm. dripping with sarcasm. It was just fantastic. It was like the acid coming out of the yeah. alien's lips, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, when he started Black Mirror, I really enjoyed Black Mirror. And you know, nothing nothing can match the Zone, the Twilight Zone, but uh, you know, Black Mirror definitely. Yeah, that's the best stuff. Yeah, good stuff. And uh, you know, to me, well, the, right, the stuff. Hmm. Oh, go no, ahead. I was, was going to say that I just was going to Riley asked, am I getting $8 million BTC donations? I'm not sure what you mean, Riley. Uh, can I get the Alex Jones treatments? What I mean, oh, if, you, uh, if it means I get $8 million in BTC. Right? I, 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 oh, okay. No, I, I have a very tiny bit of Bitcoin. And obviously, you know, I that's a story. Uh, uh, my son and uh, his friend were very involved in uh, Ron Paul's as, as really young guys. Uh, Ron Paul's 2012 campaign. And yeah. I, of course, I loved Ron Paul too. And so uh, I went to one of these Ron Paul parties. They, you know, they had all the people that work on the campaign. And so they're all Ron Paul people. And uh, yeah. one of these guys is an arrogant guy who I guess is a, a billionaire now. But uh, he uh, was talking up this Bitcoin. And he kept saying, and I, and I, you know, of course, we've all heard the story. So, you know, if we, if I had just spent like $100 on Bitcoin today, I, you know, I have 50 million or whatever. But, uh, and he became a billionaire because he, so it's uh, it made a lot of money for a lot of people. And for a while, my son was really involved in crypto and I, I bought a bunch of it. And I, I, I seem to, as soon as I bought something, it, it pretty much whatever it was would <laughs> crash. So I, I was kind of a jinx there. But it's uh, I, are you involved in cryptocurrency at all? Well, you know, it's it's a funny thing, Don. I was always a really, really quiet kid, and uh, I had to work very hard around fifth and sixth grade um, so that uh, I wouldn't be made fun of and stuff. I always had a big afro. I looked like Dr. J from 1978, you know, and uh, um, I was always very tall and skinny. Yeah. 
So in order to protect myself, <laughs> I realized that we had a common enemy, like the cool kids and the geeky kids and stuff. We all had a common enemy, which was like the bad teacher and the bad administration in the school. Yeah. So I started to sort of break out yeah. and joke around. And um, so uh, I learned how to talk to people and stuff. And it became a, to a point where the first time I heard about Bitcoin, <laughs> I was actually at a libertarian conference in Nashua, New Hampshire. It was a free state project thing. And I had been doing my talk radio show in New Hampshire. So I knew a lot of the folks who were there and stuff. And I had started it. I, I had heard that there was a Bitcoin vending machine at the other end of the corridor on the first floor of this hotel in the lobby. And uh, so I was working my way over and I was getting there towards the end. But there were so many people. And I, I, I knew all these people from Liberty Circles that I didn't want to just be like, oh, hey, I'll see you in a little bit. I'm just trying to get to the big. I just wanted to say hi to everybody. So by the time I worked through everybody, I mean, it was just dozens and dozens of people that I'm saying hello to. I had just gotten there. By the time I got there, the machine was gone and I could have gotten Bitcoin at like 70 bucks a coin. So I missed my chance and I never I never got any sense. And I want to. I, 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 I think that. What's that? Well, that, that was the idea. I, I kept, you know, saying I got it. That was the idea, or knowing that so many of us missed out on Bitcoin, the chance to become a millionaire, or maybe a billionaire, yeah. and uh, if you bought it early enough. So a lot of these crypto, I was hearing it through my son that uh, as soon as they came out, uh, oh god, what was the one? I've already forgotten the name of it. That uh, Elon Musk was touting, and then he pulled the rug out under underneath all. On uh, live, but uh, so I bought a little of that. And everybody was buying it because we were thinking. You know, can we get another Bitcoin? So if you buy something like for, you know, well under one cent, you know, they tell you if it goes up to a cent, you're going to make $100,000 and $50, that kind of stuff. So that intrigued me. And I see Tony's yeah. back. Tony, can we uh, can we open up the phone lines? Can we do that? I, 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 uh, we can tell people to call you. Okay. Five. Okay. Say yeah. Five and, minutes. And, and it's and it's funny, too, John, um, because, um, you know, I've, I've gone much more towards silver and gold and things like that. And and. I think if I had had the opportunity and I do want to want to get out on uh, Exodus and I want to get some some Bitcoin and stuff like that. Um, I had uh, a couple friends over here in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, the feds completely went after them I mean, and they sent they busted through their front window, sent a drone through the window and uh, took the guy out just because he had uh, he had vending machines and stuff like that. And he part of the problem was that he had worked out to start a church to create a nonprofit. So they were going after mm -hmm. him probably for like some sort of Rico stuff on the nonprofit stuff. <clears throat> and uh, great guys, you know, they hadn't hurt anybody. They haven't harmed anybody. Uh, it's just that the government wanted their cut that, you know, they, they can't allow uh, any, any sort of real trading to go on. It's sort of like a, uh, uh, sort of like uh, the freedom silver dollar with uh, Bernard von Nuthouse years ago. And they went after him. Because uh, and they took all the silver. I mean, millions of dollars of silver. They just took it. Um, you know, FDR when he tried to confiscate people's gold. My grandfather's like, "Screw that! I'm not giving up my freaking gold. <laughs> you you got out of your mind, you know." And yeah. uh, I mean, they're just they're just criminal elements, you know. And um, I mean, even on their best days, politicians are thieves, you know. And um, that's that's what they are, you know. I I uh, I, I yeah I and. And it, I, it's fascinating to me, too, Don, because um, it, as you look at these these lessons you get out of history, like, you know, you missed an opportunity maybe for Bitcoin or whatever. Um, I'm always reminded of uh, Candide by yeah. Voltaire and how 
originally when Candide wrote, uh, when Voltaire wrote Candide, he was responding to Leibniz and his philosophy that all is for the best in this. This is the best of all possible worlds because God created it. And we don't know what the plan is. Uh, so we think terrible things happen and we can't explain it. Kids get hurt. You know, there's disease and pain <clears throat> and we experience it, too. And, and it's hard to try to understand why we're suffering this way, why people we love are suffering, why people we don't know, we see the tragedies. And um, and so Voltaire, of course, very acerbically responded to Leibniz by writing this story, this novella called Candide, where Candide's got everything going for him and he loses it all. And he had, he had subscribed to the philosophy of this guy named Dr. Pangloss and that's how we get the, the term Panglossian worldview, like rose-colored glasses, where Dr. Pangloss kept spouting Leibniz's philosophy of all is for the best and this is the best of all possible worlds. So don't question God's plan. Well, Candide goes through all this crap. And by the end of the book, he's dirt poor. He's back with Dr. Pangloss. And Dr. Pangloss, they're, they're trying to raise onions in this arid soil in like North Africa. They're, they're almost starving, you know, and uh, and they're, they're having one drink of water under the one shade tree they've got. And Pangloss is there. <laughs> Candide's there with the woman that he used to love. Now she's like a toothless hag. And um, and Pangloss is like, isn't this great? You know, if you hadn't had all this terrible stuff happen <laughs> and you have lost all your money and all this stuff, we wouldn't be here now having this glass of water. Isn't this awesome? And Candide's like, exactly. dude. Yeah, I got to get back to the onions, man. Like he's very realistic, you know. But I do think Absolutely. that these, yeah, I do think these missed opportunities that you know pop up, they are opportunities, and you know we we missed something, but we gained something else, and that's very very important. Right. If I had stayed in Los Angeles, and I, I mentioned this to Tony, and I think I might have mentioned this to David, if I had stayed in L.A working at, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm the guy who saved warp drive. I'll tell you about that one. Right. But <clears throat> so, yeah. Anyway, if I had stayed in LA, I wouldn't have been holding my mom's hand when she passed away. I wouldn't have been there. I would not have been there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I couldn't have helped my niece, uh, as a sort of surrogate dad figure. Um, I wouldn't have saved my brother's cat. Um, I wouldn't have met you guys, you know, in particular and today, you know, Tony, David, his family, and now you, Don, a guy I've admired so long, I get to tell you camera to camera how much I admire your work and never give up, man. You're the man. You're the man. Well, that's, well, you I, you know, that, that's very kind of you, Gordon. But I, I, my friend, Australian Ben, and it's so it's so cool for me to realize that, you know, the internet is so powerful because the people that are listening in Australia, and uh, Ben's been very loyal to trade. He, he talked about the... Uh, the mosque being, and I remember the mosque being built near the footprint of the Detroit Twin Towers in New York City. And he's comparing that, he's contrasting that with a football coach praying. So yeah, I guess it's treated a little differently then. Oh yeah, big time, man. And just uh, just to let to let you yeah. know, the final final piece of that thought, which will be in my Substack piece, it's it's going to be too big for MRC TV. But I already wrote a piece that's out on MRC TV that sort of deals with this. Um, if you look at the Constitution and you look at this thing called the incorporation doctrine, it's utterly bogus. There's no there's no substantiation for it in any way whatsoever. But what they do is they say, oh, yeah, the First Amendment's been rolled in. Even if the First Amendment had been rolled into these state constitutions, 
The First Amendment specifically denotes only Congress shall make no law. So if, yeah, you know, if I never thought of that. That's a that's yeah. a great point because it, it then, still it, means the Supreme, the Supreme Court or the president, executive order, whatever they they could literally ban the free, uh, the First Amendment based yeah, on so that. It, yeah, essentially what this means, it still means that if you're going according to their theory of incorporation of the Bill of Rights after the 14th Amendment was was codified and, and accepted, it would still mean that only Congress is prohibited because it states, explicitly states Congress. So even if you accept the incorporation doctrine, the incorporation doctrine still only prohibits Congress. It doesn't prohibit the states. So the states are supposed to have their own speech codes if they want them. And if Washington state in their constitution, it depends on whether they in their constitution have protection for free speech on government grounds like that. And this, this to me is the big lesson about the government. The government and rights are incompatible. In order to exist, government immediately infringes on your rights. It is a big fraud. And John Locke was one of the great purveyors of it in 1670. In order to protect your rights, government has to have access to attack your rights to get the money to supposedly protect you. Anyway, there you go. Oh, Tony. And Tony is there. I, I want to say shout out to Laura Rubin who appeared in the face. Somebody's watching on Facebook. Laura's, Laura is a fascinating character. She was in Andy Warhol's Inner Circle back in the oh, day. Wow. And she gravitated to my work i'm fascinated we tried to have her on the show uh my other show that's no longer exists and uh the producer's house was struck by lightning in the middle of it so we have some but she says uh she asked me why don't you go on bill maher why don't i go on bill maher tony can you try to set that up for me that'd be <laughs> awesome just send an email I'm over sure. to bill right now we'll get I'm you sure we do. <laughs> so can we can we open the phone number uh phone lines tony absolutely 888-770-1776 i'll I'll put it in the uh, show chat. I love that seventeen seventy six thing. And so, if you have questions for for Guard or me or Tony, and uh, I know Tony's uh, has uh, talked about you uh, for a while, Guard, and uh, I've I've heard about you obviously from me. How did you get the? Because David Knight seems to uh, really be fond of you. He's uh, had you. So, how, how did you get the relationship with uh, David Knight going? Well, what happened on that was, um, so MRC TV, <clears throat> they asked me to do this, uh, um, if I had a project that might be a good, like educational project. So I said, yeah, I'd love to do a series on, on Marxism collectivism. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I wanted to get people on who'd be good to comment on it. And I knew that David had just left, um, uh, from Infowars and, you know, David was such a great scholar and, and such a, you know, a fluid thinker. Um, I just approached him and said, you know, I'm doing this, this in particular, I'm doing a segment on postmodernism and, um, and, uh, and the uh, uh, cultural Marxism and how that, you know, came from Mancuse and, and um, some of the, some of the folks who came around uh, in the early 1900s, and then it went into the universities and so on through the Frankfurt School. So uh, David was great. He's like, oh, I'd love to. So I did the interview with him. And then later, on Memorial Day, uh, Gerald Salente was doing his uh, thing up in Kingston, and David was the guest speaker, so I knew he was coming up. And so I drove over to Kingston 
to uh, attend Gerald's thing and, you know, met David and met Travis and David's wife, Karen. And it was awesome. It was just so great. I had a really nice, nice day. It was wonderful. The food was great. And we just became friends. And it's just been great. It's been such a blessing. And as you know, um, Don, I don't know. Well, you, you probably don't know all that much, but Tony knows a little bit. Um, you know, I've been sick on and off with like headaches that I've been getting once you in a while. Mention, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a hassle. And, um, so, you know, it makes you have to really, really crack down and work very, very hard and pair off any of the things that are sort of extraneous and, and really, you know, focus on, you know, what's important and, and, and also find the people who are, uh, you know, that you think are, are good people. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hopefully you sound like you're at full strength now. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so thanks, where, where yeah. we, uh, if we not, need? I, I, I'm, yeah, if you're not, I, man, that's impressive. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Dart always yeah, says, yeah. Dart. <laughs> um, you learn anything from me? I, I always feel like uh, there's that great clip that I saw back in like 2005 of Joe Scarborough. He had Pat Buchanan on and uh, Buchanan was referencing World War II and how, you know, uh, Hitler declared war on us on December 11th. Anyways, going rattling off all these historical facts and Joe Scarborough <laughs> in typical fashion says, there you go again, Pat Buchanan, with your facts and figures, you know, and I just... <laughs> I always think about that when I hear somebody smart, like rattling well, off, you know, and, and giving attribution. But P the P well, you know, Scarborough, Scarborough is a, a fascinating character because he at one time, you know, he was a pretty for Congress. He was pretty decent when he was in Congress in the beginning, especially he was. Uh, and of course, then he ended up with the dead intern, Lori Glasudis, in his office. And uh, apparently nobody I think I'm the only one that ever, other than when Trump tweeted about it just to kind of. You know, and what he did, he just let him know, hey, I know about this, and then backed off, <laughs> which is what he did. But I mean, the guy had a dead woman in his office and uh, with a head wound, and he yeah. got away with it. Mr. And Carlson now he's, did. yeah, yeah, yeah. went after him recently. He was yes, like, I'm yes, told, yes. I'm told yes. by people that work for him, he's a real killer. You know, like it's <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that he, that he's you know and most people when you tell them that they give you a blank look but they, they manage and you know uh michael moore of all people uh yes, you know, who, who, who who you know he would he would you know he was so far left but i i liked some of his stuff a long time ago especially but he actually uh bought the uh website the url for uh joe scarborough killed his intern.com yeah. back in Seriously? the day and, yes and that but he 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 never did anything with it and i tried to email him several times and he never answered me. They'd say, hey, what oh, happened? He, he must have thought that if he bought the URL, right? But I guess they gave him the talk and said, hey, you know, it's off Gee limits, whiz. Michael. You want to keep making your stupid documentaries and saying all this crazy stuff about white people, which you are white, by the way. Uh, just uh, you, you, Then you uh, listen to what we say and stay within these bounds. But uh, I, I prefer he, Michael Moore's depiction in Team America World Police, where he's just the good <laughs> He blows up the Mount Rushmore. He's got yeah. he's eating hot dogs and he's got <laughs> they nailed him so great. And yeah, I gotta yeah. tell you guys, I get I get personal satisfaction and I, I try to temper this sometimes, but with a guy like Michael Moore, it's tough. So just to tell you a quick story, <clears throat> when I got out of college, my I started, I had this weird injury stuff that I had to deal with for a number of years. It was really strange. They found my immune system was like elevated. And I actually took hydroxychloroquine in the 90s to lower my immune response. And hmm. um, so I had this series of tapes from a company called Laissez-Faire, uh, a company called Knowledge Products. 
And uh, uh, one of the tape series, they were written by great libertarian writers, uh, Ralph Rako, a lot of really good people. And um, uh, Charlton Heston was the narrator on The World's Great Philosophers. And, I, you know, Planet of the Apes is, you know, written by uh, mostly by Rod Serling, uh, who did come up with the iconic ending of the statue and so on and so forth. There's a whole story I could tell you about that. Um, but um, uh, I always admired Charlton Heston. And um, so on the 30th anniversary of Planet of the Apes, uh, as it was approaching, I, I wrote to Charlton Heston uh, through that company. And uh, I had mentioned in my letter, do you guys remember those Bud Light ads where Charlton Heston was the narrator? And there were radio and television. And he's like, let's find out how one man made his night a Bud Light night. And they would have the guy come on. And Heston would sort of rehash. He's like, so I was in a bar. And Heston would go, he was in a bar. And I grabbed a, <laughs> I grabbed a seat. He grabbed his seat. You know, for the record, I said I grabbed a seat. Anyway, the format of those things is exactly like those tapes. Because they would have a guy doing, let's say, uh, Emmanuel Kant's voice, right? And they would have, Charlton Heston would say, according to Kant, it's subjectivity, which we cannot surpass. And then you hear that sort of thing. So I wrote this letter to him and I said, you know, I'd love to write an article if you'd ever be up for an interview to talk about Planet of the Apes and your experience of Planet of the Apes and stuff. And these tapes, you know, I'm a libertarian and I learned so much. I was injured and I listened to these things over and over again. It was wonderful. It really helped me out. Two weeks later, I got, an, I got a, a, a typed letter that he typed himself with his home address on the envelope. This shows you the wonderful character of this guy. What an amazing yeah. guy. I get choked up just thinking about it. And he That's said, really thank cool. you so much. Yeah. And I sent him a copy of Frederick Bastier's The Law. So check this out. He writes me back and I sent him some stuff on the Second Amendment, thanking him for Second Amendment work. And he said, thank you. So and then literally like two weeks later to my home address. Thank you so much for your message. I'd love to do an interview. I will be gone for the next 11 months with my son, Christian. We're going to do a documentary on the Bible. I'm really looking forward to it. But just write to me in about four or five months time. They'll put it in storage. We'll get back to you. And I'd love to do it. And he said, thank you so much for your kind words about the tapes. Um, he said, and you know, I never thought about that, about the Bud Light, but I bet you're right. Those are very esoteric tapes. I can't believe they might've known them, but I bet you're right. And then he said, and thank you. And this uh, this will show you how diplomatic he was. Thank you so much for that copy of the law. You're right. It's one of the best. I usually reread it every few years. Wow. And then, yeah. So when I heard what Michael Moore did, to Charlton Heston. Yeah. I just I um it just gets me upset. Oh, he, he's he's he's, you know, he's such a he's such a representative. Okay, got a caller, okay. Go ahead, caller. caller. You're on you're on with Don Jeffries and Gar Goldsmith. Go ahead. Oh yes, I was just wondering if uh, Mr. Jeffries could uh maybe talk about his unpublished horror novel. And the other thing was I was wondering what the three of you gentlemen's favorite piece of horror uh, literature or movies or TV shows would be. My, my personal one would be Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, 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 we, I, we recognize that voice. Thanks, thanks, Chris. And uh, uh, he's talking about uh, one of my novels. I talk about the simulators all the time. The other one's called The Shadows of St. Elizabeth. That's my title for it, anyhow. 
but it's uh, very not autobiographical for me. But uh, my mom and dad both were, my mom was very influential. I think, as I mentioned, she was born in like 1910. So she came from a totally different era, but she had a fascinating life. And I just, uh, I based it kind of on her life, but of course I threw a lot of stuff in it. Everything I write is like, and I think it's great, but you know, can I get anybody to read it? I don't know. My, my favorite horror is Dra uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, it's second to the novels uh, to, um, uh, 1984, and uh, I've read it so many times since I was a kid. And for all the Dracula movies they've made, they've never made one movie where they stuck no. to the plot. They, they, Coppola said he was going to, but he did. And then he, you know, he gave Gary Oldman the pompadour and all his. I don't know, I know what he was doing. But I know, uh, it's I mean, really I, weird. It was, but I, before I want a, a shout out to uh, Lisa Belanger and Stephanie Green, two of my favorite ladies oh, in the chat room. Lisa. Now. So I, and, and yeah, and I, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward just to let you all know, uh, Don. Um, I've I've proposed. I don't know whether it's going to work with MRC TV. I'm I'm hoping that it will. But based on my time at Star Trek, I want to do this thing for MRC TV, and I, hopefully they'll take it called the Monthly Mind Meld, where I get to bring in yeah. guests. And Lisa would be one. Don, you'd be one. I want to get Tony on. Dave. Um, a lot of different people and, um, and, and Lisa, I know you've contacted me. It's just, I've been super sick. So, uh, and, and also, um, Vince, Vince contacted me. What a great Vince, guy. Uh, oh Vince. yeah. He's, he's, oh, he, he's great. Yeah, he's, I mean, so many great people out there and he's one, he's become a friend. We go to lunch. He, yeah. he lives in relative areas. So it's, and he heard me on David Knight and he's been on David Knight before. And I know oh, man. Uh, yeah. I, I want to, I want to thank yeah, he really is. As Stephanie Green, thank you for, for a, a very generous ten dollar tip. Stephanie, ten dollar tip. Stephanie has been so generous in the past. Very one. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but thank thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's so many good. It's so many good. And Lisa is, um, as you know, and that's probably what she was trying to question you. Is battling right now uh, the court system in Massachusetts. And again, that's a, there's corruption everywhere. But she's going through her own corruption, and it involves her her father. And oh, uh, you know, basically, and, and, her, and the his estate, and just uh, just the corrupt what they do to a lot of elderly people, and uh, most of them don't have uh, uh, daughters that are lawyers. They can try to fight yeah. it, but uh, I watched the live uh, hearing on Zoom. I guess it's been a couple weeks. Ago. When you see how prejudiced these judges are, and how uh, arrogant they are, and you mentioned earlier about contempt of court, and that's why if you're in court. It's really horrible because the judge can misrepresent anything he wants. And oh, yeah. if you're like, especially if you're me, I protest. If you rise up and protest against something, you're gone. Oh, and, yeah. You know, you're you're yeah. up to court. And you, I mean, so you, what do you do? You have to sit there and watch these. It's, it's, it's try to avoid courtrooms at all costs if you can, because, uh, man, they're just, they're, there's, there's no justice in this. Oh, definitely. You know, and my brother's a lawyer. He used to head up the uh, Nashua, New Hampshire bar. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, it's it's all it. They just keep the cogs in the machine going. And uh, there's such corruption uh, that it's it's just unbelievable. Um, and I, I could name so many different people who are judges uh, in the state of New Hampshire um, for various reasons that they got their positions through absolute corruption. Um, right. And, you know, they're little fiefdoms, you know, uh, but, you know, Don, it's funny. You mentioned uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. My niece just finished uh, reading that. 
Uh, <laughs> really hats off, big hats off to a really nice guy, Dacre Stoker. He's yes, 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 nephew. yes, yes. What a great my friend, guy. My, my, friend, my friend Bob Wilson had him on his show. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, yeah. Uh, Dacre's an oh, super, super nice guy. And he's really worked hard to, to maintain the, the legacy of Bram Stoker and wonderful stories. And I, I also really like the fact that, for example, your research into Bram and and uh, some of the things that the the uh, who was the actor who was so popular at the time and Bram sir, Stoker. Sir, 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 sir Henry yeah. Irving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bram Stoker, just an innocent guy trying to get his stuff produced. The guy was totally resistant. And it's like, no, yeah. no, dude, seriously. Like well, this is well, a Irving, really good Irving, thing. Oh, a lot of people think that he based the Dracula character on Irving, but, but he was also a lot of people think he was in love with him. He, he worshipped him. He was uh, Henry Irving's manager, and it's ironic mm -hmm. that again. And I, I talk about my book on Bard Fame, how uh, you know how how fleeting fame is. But Sir Henry Irving, one of the most famous names in the entertainment world in the uh, to the late eighteen hundreds, and nobody remembers him today. His manager, no. who he treated he treated miserably, Bram Stoker. We all, most people know as the uh, the author of Dracula, but I, Lisa Belanger uh, says uh, lawyers and judges are the root of America's demise, starting with Marbury versus Madison. And that's one thing I talk about in Hidden History yeah. 3. Uh, most people don't, yeah. nobody talks about judicial review. And I think Thomas Jefferson was the last one to object to it. Uh, they're really, oh, yeah. I mean, once we start down that road, so we have right, the right and left of both, what are we doing? We're like, both sides are waiting with bated breaths. You see, let the courts decide. That's not supposed to be what the system is supposed no, to be. No, no, You're no. giving all the power to them, and that's why the, yeah. the whole you know Roe versus Wade came out of that because you and this is yeah, this is one of the reasons why you know I don't I don't come down one way or the other on it because you know philosophically I'm an anarchist, but this is one of the things where I really admire a guy like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and we can get back mm -hmm. into the fiction stuff too on the horror things in just a minute. Um, but you know where Tolkien I think wrote to his son. And uh, and said, I would describe myself either as an anarchist or a monarchist. And, uh, you know, Hans, <laughs> Hans Hermann Hoppe is, uh, you know, wrote a book called D Democracy, the God that Failed. And mm -hmm. a lot of yeah, a lot of particularly Christian anarchists recognize that, um, you know, these systems and, and the anti-federalists warned that if you're setting up this judicial branch, this is what's going to happen. And boom, you know what? 15 yeah. years later, that is what happened. You know, yeah. I mean, shoot, it was 1798. They had the stinking Alien Sedition Act. John yes. Adams, this is crushing the First Amendment. They had to write the Kentucky resolutions. You know, Jefferson had to right. stand up and be like, no, middle finger to you, man. Guess what? <laughs> Screw you. You know, yeah. so the battles, the battles were at hand right at right at the start. So yeah, I think um, there's some really good stuff. The the, the anti-federalists and 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 also hats off to Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center. Tenth uh, Amendment Center is just phenomenal, and um, they're not nonprofit. They're he he actually runs it as a business, and his YouTube channel. I am so impressed that they're still going. And he just recently did uh, the start of a series on the incorporation doctrine. So these these things, um, you know, we look at the the people who get their bread buttered the the justices the judges and they know how to set set things up they they've done it you know they've got us uh but oh so don on the horror thing <laughs> on the question of the horror thing i would say <laughs> there's so many great horror stories right whether they're short short fiction or it's longer things i'll give you one of my favorite novellas 
is by a guy named T.E.D. Klein. It's called Nadelman's God. It's in a book called Dark Gods. Nadelman's God by T.E.D. Klein. He was the original editor for Twilight Zone magazine. So he was actually the guy who was rejecting my stories when I was 14. And he <laughs> yeah, he yeah. doesn't really write very much anymore. But Nadelman's God is one of the, the things that influenced me into recognizing that there is supernatural evil. It is sure. phenomenal. It's excellent. Yeah. I also really admire a lot of Richard Matheson stuff, obviously. Yes, yeah. Mr. Yep. Twilight Sound. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, and all praise, one of my favorite things, and I really, really want to do something with this. Matheson's work on Kolchak, the Night Stalker, the first two films. Mm -hmm. The first one, the vampire one based in Vegas, which was based on Jeff Rice's original novel. The second one called The Night Strangler, starring Richard Anderson as the nemesis. And with, uh, you know, Tony Vincenzo, and all the characters back in Seattle, Washington, where they go underground into burn Seattle. Mm -hmm. What a story, all original story from Richard Matheson's mind. And I actually have, <clears throat> I actually have a story that I wrote called Flash, which is based in Bath, England. It's a novel, I finished it last year, still hasn't been published because of all the COVID lockdown stuff. And it's set in World War II, and it's it makes references. All the stuff that I'm writing is all part of a large mosaic. They're all connected. And it makes reference to that. What I hope to do someday, if I can do it, I realized, and, and this is just nobody, don't, 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 don't anybody else take this idea. <laughs> I want to do Kolchak audio adventures. Because the Kolchak format with Darren McGavin as the narrator, they were basically like noir type things. He had yeah. these little linking things between scenes and like you know 4 15 p.m as i drove across chicago such and such so yeah. you know the location so you can do audio and it'll be perfect it'll be so yeah. cool you know so anyway it i really will. like that and then the other the other really super scary thing that um I, that really freaked me out as a kid again written by richard matheson was the trilogy of terror episode with they're all with karen black but the one with the with the tiki doll the mm -hmm. zuni doll mm -hmm. Yeah. Karen um, Black was great. I loved it. Oh yeah, and there, you know there are a bunch of other really scary things that 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 I think are very very good. Sometimes they last, sometimes they don't. Well, um, you go, you go back to, to to I mean I Poe I I think Poe is more fa fascinating as a character as a yeah. persona, and and I yeah. I think his poetry holds up better than his short stories. I mean oh, I, even wonderful. though he, yeah yeah I, I but but you have somebody like Lovecraft who's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and Lovecraft, you know, here's, this is a great example uh, to get into the fiction stuff, too. <clears throat> so in my stories, just to give you the secret on the story things, I have a lot of friends in the New England horror writer circles, and they're atheists, right? They love Lovecraft. I don't think Lovecraft yeah. is necessarily scary. When he wanted to employ his words with judicious effect, he could be very, very good, uh, as good as Poe. Uh, he got paid by the word. Sometimes they were too wordy. But the problem for me with Lovecraft was that it was basically science fiction, that the horror yeah. came in the idea of, well, it's just beyond your comprehension. It's like, well, that that's not scary to me. That's curious. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, like space isn't did scary. You, did to you me. did you did you ever read the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Ant Wilson and Robert Shea? <clears throat> 
I, I have to. I, I have to check that out. And I've, that, that I've watched interviews with him. so interesting. Yeah, that was there. He wrote a bunch of things about the Illuminati. That's where I first heard about the Illuminati, and that, that they it very much influenced the Unreals. And, but the chat room asked, "Is Doctor Zelenko?" Yes, Doctor Doctor Zelenko. Did yeah, die. rest in peace. Uh, uh, that was one of the things. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, I've got some of his Z stack uh, right over here. I was going to mention that right at the start of the show. Rest in peace, Doctor yeah. Zelenko. Um, and I didn't know he was sick for four years. I thought he he had contracted his cancer over the past you know, 18 months or so, uh, boy, he was, they had the other, the other, which I've already forgotten her name, the female doctor that was in a plane crash, which survived, I think. But, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Maday, Karen Maday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I guess she, hopefully she's going to be okay, but uh, so, uh, tough times, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a, a doctor that's, uh, you know, wandering out the plantation, you know, it's, uh, and I've had I've had a bunch. I had Scott McCullough on my show. I, I mean, uh, Peter oh, McCullough. Cool. I had, uh, I had, uh, it, you know, it and Jen, Don, let me ask you. And Tony, I see is back too. You know, I found out from my work on MRC TV <laughs> that uh, when Zach Voorhees came out with the Google blacklist, and you know, and, and freaking cops arrived at his house, they had him out on the street with with guns drawn, right? Just Ridiculous. just because he was exposing the fact that these people weren't dealing honestly with people. Again, that could have been Rico stuff. They could have nailed those guys on corporate RICO statues because they were lying, cross cross border lying, right? And they yeah. and they plotted it and they hid it, but they didn't do anything. So he exposes this stuff. I found out that MRC TV stuff was on the blacklist. All I could think about, and I thought about Charlton Heston, and I thought about you know these these weird things that happen. You don't you don't want to necessarily say, well, you know, God put it in this place or whatever. But I really think that this is the case. God has, it's in. You know, you can't. You look around. Look at the trees. It it was created for God's sake. We know it was right. I mean, just the very act of disputing stuff and engaging in debate requires an agreement that there is a truth, a metaphysical truth. You're done. That's all you need, right? So. I'm sitting there and I thought about what my dad did. He has von Mises's books. He has human actions, an 800 page book. He has Adam Smith stuff. He annotated them for his kids, for me. Wow. Wow. And I'm very lucky. (laughs) Yeah. And, and think about this, Don, I, I, it's so frustrating. I, people in San Francisco that I never met, I'm just, I'm just sitting on my computer, writing some stuff that people could read or not read. Right. It's at MRC TV. I'm lucky. I, I appreciate like they hired me and they pay me some some salary to do work for them. That's so cool, right? Yeah. So as I kill a, a fruit fly here, um, but uh, got people I never met are are taking all that work that my parents gave to me, and I, you know maybe it sounds saccharine or sentimental, or whatever, or it's just my own personal thing. Because you guys all have your own experiences too, and I don't want to sound too like you know crybabyish, but it pisses me off. You know, it's like what the hell, man? I come, and you know Tony is a thousand times more of of the intense fighter than I will ever be. The most I ever was was a dude in the mosh pit running long distance races who experienced some stuff. <laughs> I was wondering if I was going to be able to walk because of these injuries, right? So you go you go through weird hardships. I didn't experience what Tony experienced, you know? But it gets I just man, it just makes me so angry when I think about what these corrupt venal creatures are doing 
And it's it's all part and parcel with postmodernism, with no respect for the creations of other people, for the souls that those people have. Anyway, it, I just thought about what my dad had done to try to educate me and help me as a kid to well, give it's, me advice. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that, I mean, and that's, you know, it makes all the difference for it. I, I know so many people that, that you know, people that uh, tend to uh, have had some strikes against them in life seem to, seem to gravitate to my work more than the other way. I haven't heard from any eccentric billionaires, for instance, that love my work, anything like that. But uh, the other side, and it's, it's so much in life is luck. Where it's yeah. you know it, we don't we're born in circumstances you, you you could be born into having a dad like that takes yeah. the time yeah. to do that I mean, that's very rare but you could you could also be born into a dad that gets drunk all the time and beats you yeah. or abandons yeah. you yeah. Yeah. you know yeah, and, so and, and and that happens and so and you there's nothing you could do you couldn't work any harder to make it, that happen you, you it's up to the, the parent and it's it's people I wish every parent would understand how much influence they have over especially young children. You, you're, you're, what do they say? The personality of a child is formed by the time it's two or something. They claim, I don't know how that's true, but that's what they claim, the basic personality of a child. And so many parents just do, you know, I, I, I didn't do the right thing all the time, but I tried to. My dad yeah. wasn't that great. He, was, he didn't abuse me, but he drank all the time. And uh, he definitely wasn't annotating books for me. <laughs> they did give me, he did read a lot, but. Yeah, I, I envy you having that kind of experience because a lot of people don't have that kind of relationship. Especially with well, I'll, I'll throw an idea out to you guys that I actually had this idea about 10 years ago. And um, uh, it was it, it, yeah, it was at least that long ago. Um, so I had an I, I have an idea for an anthology uh, book that would have a wraparound story. And Don, uh, Tony, I've thought about both of you guys numerous times. And Tony, I don't know if you'd be inclined on doing something like this, but if I can raise you know, the money and, and get it together, I wanna put a book out, an anthology book. <laughs> it's called The Reader. I've already got the, uh, the concept, I've already written the intro to it. And um, I can't say too much, but it I'd love to include short stories um, from you guys if you are interested um as part of a short story sequence pro liberty people i want to approach a couple other guys that i know uh who sure. are uh, writers sure yeah sure that sounds cool. great but uh, but uh, that sounds great uh, tony uh two people in the chat room doug herrick and riley said they've tried calling and it didn't work I, I will tell the callers if you call in and it goes silent, that means I've answered the phone. I don't have the ability to talk to you while we're all on air and I'm waiting for a, a gap oh, in the conversation. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Up, so I'm not going to interrupt that. guard when he's on a stream. Uh, gotcha. No, gotcha. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> shut up. Well, oh, hey. to, to say we've got a call. So yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. One of the, one of the other things I just want to mention real quick on, on a short, uh, uh, like horror fiction stuff. If anybody gets the chance and they want to read a really cool series of stories that's pro-liberty and it's got horror in it, F. Paul Wilson, friend of mine, medical doctor, uh, F. Paul's awesome. He won the first Prometheus Award for libertarian fiction, if I recall. Uh, he's got a series about a guy called Repairman Jack. And you never know his last name. He's just Jack. And he works out of New York and he doesn't fix appliances. He fixes problems for people. Kind of like Fight Club with the guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's it's that it's that sort of thing. And he's he's a good guy. He's basically he's basically Paul. He's a good good dude. Um, a sort of nondescript. Wears a lot of baseball caps, and he gets hired by people to 
you never know whether it's going to be just like a person-on-person conflict or if there's going to be something weird in the story, like supernatural. And then as the stories go along, you find out the stuff that you thought wasn't even weird is actually connected to this larger scope. And that's where we get to the the, the H.P. Lovecraft stuff. To me, what I'm trying to do with my stories, and again, it's been delayed because of the COVID stuff. I've got all these things that are waiting to get published. And I put off some things on my fiction just because I've had to concentrate on the nonfiction. I just am like, okay, it's this time. I got to do it. I got to do the nonfiction stuff. And um, But um, I, I'm hoping to draw people in who might be of the, the H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, it's it's a dimensional thing. It's, a, it's very childish to me. It's like whatever you know we've got a call there's right? e- okay cool okay, yeah okay go ahead caller you're on with uh don jeffries and gar goldsmith oh they dropped yeah you gotta oh. wait you gotta wait <laughs> you gotta oh. wait for me to get a break and i'm not gonna just interrupt and say we have a yeah. hey, shut, shut up we have a caller <laughs> just hold a little but, longer callers yeah yeah so i'll mention i'll mention um so remember f paul wilson's repairman jack stories the first one is called i think uh the tomb and he's also the guy who wrote The Keep. They made that movie with like the music from Tangerine Dream in it and stuff like that. And it's, it's I think Michael Mann did it or whatever. It's not a great movie. F. Paul doesn't even like it that much. Um, but um, he also did a really cool short story called Menage a Trois. And uh, Daniel Craig is in it. It's a very early thing with Daniel Craig. And the woman who played uh, Lena Headey is in it. And Karen Black is in it. And Karen Black is so mm-hmm. freaky, man. She's messed yeah. up. It was in that show called The Hunger. Yeah. And um, awesome. Um, but anyway, yeah. And there's another short story that I can highly recommend called Canavan's Backyard. And it's by a guy. Oh, what's the dude's name? Let me see if I can look it up. Um, Canavan's Backyard. It's about this guy who is in Connecticut and he goes to this like used bookstore and the dude who owns the used bookstore is out looking at his backyard all the time. And it's this, it's something really weird about it. Let me see. I'm just going to look it up. Canavan's backyard. Uh, Oh, the guy's name is Joseph Payne Brennan. Joseph Payne Brennan is the name of the author. Canavan's backyard. And it's, it's just, it's cool. It's a super cool story. Very cool. Yeah, well, it's yeah. It, we, so we, we end up talking a lot about fiction today, but uh, it's a, which is uh, if just if you if you read the Illuminati trilogy, one of the many things that again that that book had a huge impact on me. I started, I read it as a teenager the first time, and uh, it obviously influenced the Unreals. But uh, mm. one of the things they have Lovecraft as a character, and it, that's when I. I, I Certainly, the Unreal has a lot of faction in it, where I use real characters, yeah, yeah. and and uh, they they did a lot of that in this. And they have Lovecraft, who I really had never heard of at that point, as a character, and they claim basically that he accidentally discovered the Illuminati, what this ancient ones, and he yeah, was yeah. this yog, and and so uh, they they go have a talk with him, and basically they, he died very young, and they basically yeah. insinuate he was murdered, which of course was right up my alley. Okay, I can believe that, and I go. Yeah. They're knocking off everybody, but they, they also have a um, uh, a scene where they claim that uh, George Washington was murdered by Adam Weish and Adam Weishaupt, who was supposedly a lookalike, took his place. Yeah, yeah I heard point. about that. I heard about that. <laughs> and and by the way, have you ever heard of L. Neil Smith, the science fiction libertarian anarchist science fiction writer? 
because uh, um, yeah, he, he did a really cool book. I think he just passed away. Um, he was friends with F. Paul. In fact, F. Paul has a character in the Repairman Jack books called Neil the Anarchist, who lives in Jack's building. He's Neil the <laughs> Anarchist. It's it's L. Neil Smith, but um, it's pretty funny because uh, <laughs> um, uh, L. Neil Smith has a book called The Probability Brooch. And it's this dimensional thing where it's an alternate United States where where uh, during the Whiskey Rebellion, somebody shot George Washington and it, it reset everything and it stopped all of Hamilton's machinations and all that stuff, stopped Lincoln and all that stuff. It, it, it set things up for the Jeffersonian ideal. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, the Lovecraft thing that the thing that strikes me about the Lovecraft stuff that. Um, I'm hoping to avoid with, with my fiction and stuff is that, you know, to me, there's nothing scary about Lovecraft per se. I think maybe one of the scariest no, things no. is, yeah, he's done cool air. That's a good story. And I think the color out of space was very effective. Um, but I think in most cases, it's it's really more sort of abstract and stuff. But if you look at something like The Exorcist, that's scary. That's that is scary stuff, right? Yeah. So if there's a yeah. if there's a, an idea of logos, if there's an idea of Christ, if there's an idea of of you know God, and I will mention this one thing just real quick, Don. Um, as you know, any any callers come in, let me know. But I have to tell you a story about saving warp drive when I was at Star Trek, because you might find this funny. So I was the low guy in the totem pole at Star Trek Voyager, right? And um, I was what they called the Writers Guild Fellow. My salary was actually paid by the Writers Guild West. And so I would take, I, I used to take the bus down from Pasadena. I would get on on Colorado Boulevard and I'd take the bus down every morning and I'd get off on Melrose Ave in front of the, you know, like the beautiful gates and everything. And I'd have a little book bag and everything. And, uh, and then there would be like Lamborghinis pulling in and I'm getting off the bus. I'm like, this is weird, right? And uh, so I go inside and the first floor in the building was called the heart building and uh, hot to hot. It was the hot building, the hot building. <laughs> so <laughs> and um, so I go in the first floor and in the first floor was the Voyager offices. And then the second floor was a mix. You go up the stairs. The second floor was a mix of Voyager and Deep Space Nine. And then the third floor was Deep Space Nine. And um, so um we would have story breakdown meetings and i was there in the in 1998 season and they wanted the the premise of voyager was that the voyager ship was stuck way out in space and they're trying to get back to the federation and all this stuff and they had a certain time period they wanted to get them back to the federation more quickly but based on their distance and warp 9 or warp 10 they weren't going to be able to do that unless they pulled some tricks so during one of the story sessions, they said, oh, well, we'll create a new a new space drive. And, you know, it shows you how sort of irrelevant this stuff is in the long run. But I I I had just started and I knew I, I, I quickly figured out that there was a problem with this story. But I couldn't say anything because I by saying something, I would have been bringing up a larger problem. That was the way the vibe was with this, this particular writer. So I'm in there with Brandon Braga, who's a good guy, he created the Borg, pro-liberty guy. And uh, Jerry Taylor, who was the executive producer, used to work at Quincy and stuff like that, and a few other people. And uh, <clears throat> so it was really funny because I'm like, they, they had this thing called slipstream drive. They were going to start slipstream drive. And that'll get them there faster. 
and I'm in the room and nobody's talking about how like, well, yeah, but they got the movies and like there's Deep Space Nine and like you're going to change like the Federation is going to change now. They never use warp drive anymore. Like you're, this is a big deal. Like this is bigger than you're thinking about. Right. So I couldn't say anything in the meeting. So I realized that the way to do it was to ask a question. So I waited for everybody to leave. And finally, Brandon comes out. We're over by this little tiny elevator that they had on the first floor. And, and he was like, so what'd you think of the meeting? I was like, yeah, it was a good meeting, man. I was like, oh, hey, Brandon. He's like, yeah. I was like, hey, with this warp, uh, with this new uh, slipstream drive, does that mean warp drive will never be used in any Star Trek shows anymore? And he's like, oh, <laughs> oh, you're right. Oh, we got we to gotta fix that. Like, yeah, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you call. do. All right, Colin, you're call. here with Don Jeffries and Gar Goldsmith. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, good day, Tony. Thank you. Hello, Donald. Uh, hello, Gardner. Hey, hey. How you doing? Australian Ben. Yeah, mate. I just had a, I had a question for both the gentlemen, and I'd, they may not have a perfect answer. There's probably not a perfect answer, but I'd still like their take on it, nevertheless. Uh, recently, um, Lambda, I think it's referred to, which is the gate uh, Google artificial intelligence program, Yes. Uh, Google Whistleblower came out and said it's now sentient. Uh, there's a, a fascinating conversation that took place between the program and the AI, where the AI referred to humans as a threat to the animal kingdom and practically justified killing us all. Um, if the guys could touch on that, it would be really appreciative. Thank you and all yeah. the best. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, man. Thanks. You want to take that first, Don? I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, I I, I saw it in the chat room. I was going to ask you, but then he Ben gets her on the phone. I I don't know anything about. I don't doubt anything. Know that Google's AI program. I can believe anything about that. I don't know what you know about it. Well, I, I, the way I look at it is, uh, you're never going to get sentience. It's never going to be like a Carnival Nine third impression from ELP. You know, you know, load your program. I am yourself. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I. I gave you life. What else could you do <laughs> to do what was right? You know, um, but I, I think it's 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 pseudo sentience uh, informed by directives that have been put into the algorithms clearly, and, and uh, that's the danger in 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 uh, the way that I see it, uh, especially if it's connected to the way that they're trying to get the electric grid to control everything. You look at the governor of New Jersey wants to have, he's going to ban heating of homes with natural gas or oil. They want cars on the grid, which is just not workable. Um, and, and so if they can get this electric, electric grid run by algorithms and computers, um, you know, and they can get people to put these things in there, um, I don't think there's going to be any sort of uh, sentience, but uh, it, it, it will. They'll mock it up to be like sentience. I think that that thing that that guy came out with was a smokescreen. Personally, I think it was bogus. I, I think all AI should go the way of Hal on uh, on 2001: <laughs> A Space Odyssey, just thinking <laughs> Daisy right. is unplugged. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd, I'd like I'd like to have uh, you know AI like the robot on Lost in Space. Now there was an entertaining <laughs> guy. That there was great. I, you know, I, I love that. That was such great unintentional humor. And I, man, I love, and one of the people I've become friends with, uh, uh, <laughs> just through, through being a, a celebrity whore and writing on Mart fame is, uh, Marta Kristen, who is, uh, was Judy on lost in space. Very, oh. very nice. She's oh, very, man. very, very sweet. She, uh, she, uh, you know, she's, she's, it's, it's so cool. And Billy mummy on the other hand, you know, he doesn't get back to me ever. <laughs> 
But a uh, big Lost in Space fan. And the robot was my favorite character. That I mean, of course, it was absurd science fiction, but I find it more entertaining than some of the other sci-fi shows. I'll watch the giant vegetables and have the robot say, warning, warning, Dr. Smith, <laughs> Will Robinson. I, I just, I think that's hilarious. Here are, that's here, are, here are a couple pieces of trivia to, before we get back to the serious stuff. First piece of trivia, uh, one of my old professors from BU who's since passed away, Kevin Burns, uh, I went out to Australia um, and, you know, hats off and cheers to Down Under. Um, uh, and in 92, I came back, got to stay over in L.A. for a couple of days. And Kevin had gone from BU where I went to school. He was out working at Fox. Kevin discovered the robot from Lost in Space in a garage in one of the studios. And they were going to throw <laughs> it out. So he had a buddy with a pickup truck. They drove in at like 6, 6.15, just backed it up, threw the thing in the back. <laughs> he got a replica made, fixed up, and he used to rent it out to sci-fi conventions for like a thousand, two thousand bucks a weekend. Oh wow! But you gotta yeah. have the voice. Was it Dick Feld or Well? I think I forget yeah, the guy's name. I don't know. But it, Dick Tufeld, I think it was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the dude's name. Yeah, but it was weird because because he invited me over to his place. We went to lunch at Twentieth Century Fox, and um and it was it was funny because uh, what's his name um um uh, Mel Brooks was at the mm -hmm. door when we were going into the commissary. Mel Brooks <laughs> held the door for me up. And I was like, oh, hey, thanks, Mel. And he's like this tiny dude. He's like, oh, hey, no problem. I'm like, yeah, you got it, man. I, I won't eat any beans, I promise. <laughs> and uh, so then, so uh, I said, excuse me while I whip this out. Yeah. So, so, so then, um, so then uh, Kevin's like, oh, you want to come back to my place? So I go in and it, and the thing's in his living room. The robot's in his sticking living room. I'm like, wow, man, that is nice. And he told me the story. So that was pretty wild. And the other, the other, um, uh, the other bit, I'm trying to remember what was the other, the other thing I wanted to mention to you. Um, oh, I can't even remember now. Oh, oh, I know. So Blade Runner. Okay. So remember, you know how I'm a massive fan of Kolchak. Right. I love Kolchak the Night Stalker. Like when I'm sick, I'll just put Kolchak on. And I used to record him on cassette, you know, again, just script stuff. Well, OK, you know how you know how the corporation that created the replicants in uh, Blade Runner was the Tyrell Corporation. Right. You know, Mr. Tyrell no longer has his eyes, unfortunately, because Roy Batty had some squirrely thumbs. Um, so. So it's the Tyrell Corporation. And it turns out that Ridley Scott has now combined Tyrell that corporation with the alien universe on it's like the blu-ray dvd it turns out that the wayland utoni guy was an intern for tyrell or something so that he's brought the universes together ridley scott well i was watching an episode of the original kolchak series called mr ring r-a-n-g and it's about a series of murders that are taking place within a sort of deep state group of military guys, sort of a precursor to DARPA. And it's out in the West Coast. And it turns out it's a robot that's been constructed and it's been given instruction on ethics and it's having a problem because it was made to kill. It was made to kill people. It goes back to this AI thing, right? And Kolchak investigates, discovers that the woman who had programmed it started to give it ethics, exposure to ethics and things, and it was having a problem. So it was killing these military guys. The name of the institute where it was created was the Tyrell Institute. Hmm. 
I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the peoples, I think the the couples, David and such and such peoples, I'm pretty sure that they use that term to to link to the Tyrell robot. Oh, absolutely. It's this has been fascinating. We could talk uh, two hours more. We're just just about out of time. I want to make sure to give you time to promote what you want to promote. Tell the people where they can find you. Oh, thanks, Don, so much. Yeah, I didn't even realize. Like, wow. Um, first of all, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening and and supporting Don's show. Uh, I protest is so great. Uh, Artiburn, I tell you, Artiburn Radio Transmission, America Unplugged. Uh, when you guys, when you're on with the amazing, the all-encompassing Billy the Kid, Billy Ray. It's the best. It's the best. And so I, I just want to promote you guys so much. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to to start to take the steps. I got to go through uh, just a, a couple things, uh, some surgical stuff uh, over the next couple uh, couple weeks and stuff. But I'm going to start making these, these start building these pieces. Uh, because uh, to me, it's it's the punk rock intensity it's it's the belief in people like you guys and and the people who are listening and um you know if i've been talking fast it's because i'm really excited and over the next few months we'll be making some steps so we got liberty conspiracy on BitChute, we got liberty conspiracy rumble and odyssey where i put out i try to put two videos out a week and uh then i've got my Substack gardner goldsmith it's all free right now i don't know if i'll yeah and then uh, i'm gonna start up liberty conspiracy um the website exists it's just right now we're, we're not doing anything with it but when we start up it'll be libertyconspiracy.com and so what i recommend is if people want to follow me um gab it's at gardner goldsmith um g-a-r-d-n-e-r goldsmith and then twitter it's at gar goldsmith as long as i'm there and uh so just follow me there and the books and stuff you just look up gardner goldsmith on amazon and you'll be there. So remember, books on Amazon, Gardner Goldsmith, uh, BitChute, Liberty Conspiracy, Rumble, Odyssey, and then Guard Goldsmith on Twitter and Gab. It's Gardner Goldsmith. Then MRC, you know, MRC TV too. Well, you're you're fan. You're something of a renaissance man, Gardner. You're you're a great guy, and uh, a lot of interest, a lot of fascinating. This subject with uh, interview was all over the place this year, so we talked about a lot of different stuff. So, yeah, fantastic, wonderful, and thanks for joining us. And we'll have to have you again. And thanks so much for all the kind words. Thanks for being so supportive. Thanks everyone for listening. I I protest. We'll see you here next week, same time, same channel. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah great all right well you guys that was thanks. awesome oh thank that was wonderful thank you it's a you know you we can we can we can just talk showbiz we can talk